This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. A good nerve Shabbos. I'm Mashi Lipsker. This is 101.9 High FM. And we have a very exciting show today. We have a guest. And the topic itself is one that really touches the soul of each one of us in so many areas of our lives. My visitor today is again my daughter who lives in Mauritius with her husband, Mushki Barber. Welcome. Wonderful to be here with you. And I hope that we'll be talking about not only general but very specific journeys today because the Parsha this week, the second of the two we're going to read, really is about journeys. Masay. The Elam Masay B'nai Yisrael. And these are the journeys of the Jewish nation. Interestingly, today begins the nine days. It is Rosh Chodesh. And not only any Rosh Chodesh, but it is Rosh Chodesh of, we must say, a special month. Yes, it is the saddest month of the year. And yet we have the teaching that in everything difficult, there is great potential for even greater light than in the ordinary. So, of course, in nine days' time, we will commemorate the destruction of both temples in Jerusalem. It will be Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. That, too, needs examination because that is the starting point of tremendous journeys for the nation and for individuals what we call exile, what we call golos, which also needs to be examined. The difficulties of change, of discomfort, the difficulties of exile. And so the parsha begins with speaking about the 42 journeys that the Jews traveled in the desert. The 42 journeys, each one, there's a stop and then they continue. But interestingly, the Sedra begins by saying that these are the 42 journeys by which the Jewish nation left Egypt and then came to the borders of the chosen land. So it seems that not just the first journey, but all 42 were an exodus from Egypt. But really, only the first one was. And we're going to examine today that Egypt is not just a place. It's also a state of mind. Because when we look at that word Mitzrayim, the Hebrew word for Egypt, it also means restriction, confinement. And contrasting that to the land of Israel, which is called the spacious land, Eretz Toivo Urochovo, the good and spacious land. And we contrast that to confinement, to limitation, which the word Egypt or Mitzrayim connotes. We have to ask ourselves, in terms of ourselves, what is confinement and what is spaciousness? What is restriction and what is a place of openness, of comfort? And of course, it isn't just that the Torah will tell us a story because the word Torah is from the word 
Hora'ah, lesson. And what is the lesson for us as individuals, as a nation? Where is the journey? In what is the journey? And how can we reach that open space from limitation to expansiveness? The time we find ourselves in is a time of difficulty for the nation, a time from which all future difficulty has evolved. And during this time, the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Blessed Memory has instructed us and helped us to find the light in the dark situation and encouraged us to do various things. Number one, the temple, the second temple was destroyed because of causeless hate, something called sinat chinam. And he said the obvious antidote is ahavat chinam, showing love, unconditional love. When we are in a situation of difficulty, we need to stop and look around. How did we get into this difficulty? It's very easy to become, God forbid, stuck in our own thinking, in the situation itself. But in order to get out of confinement, we have to examine how did we get into this situation in the first place? Where did we go wrong? Where did we point our toes just a little bit off course that landed up landed us up deep in the forest. And we are told that the second temple was destroyed because of something called sinat chinam, causeless hate, unwarranted hate. Well, if that's the reason that we are still in exile, the obvious antidote is ahavat chinam, unconditional love. Not loving someone because they can give you something, but loving someone just because. Showing love. Interestingly, today is the yard site of Aaron HaKohen. The Torah tells us that he passed away on the first day of the fifth month. What did he stand for? It's no accident that his yard site is not only in this period of three weeks, but at the beginning of the intensification of the mourning period the beginning of the nine days. And essentially, Aaron HaKohen was Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. He not only loved peace, but he pursued it. Ohevet Habriot, Umekorvan La Torah. He loved God's creatures, and he worked to bring them close to a better way of life, to the truth of Torah, to draw them close and elevate them to what is available but very often groping in the dark. We don't see it. The objectivity that someone else can offer. When we are in darkness, in confusion, in pain, in disappointment and frustration, with love, it becomes a big light in the darkness. And of course we need to learn that Aaron's method works for all times and all places. No mistake that his yard site is today. Today, Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh of the month of Av. And in addition to the month being called Av, which is Father, 
The month has a prefix, menachem of, to comfort the father, interestingly. And these concepts need to be brought together, not only to understand the time that we're in, but to understand any time of limitation, any time of challenge and difficulty that we personally might be going through, that the nation might be going through, that anyone around us might be going through. Another thing that the Lubavitcher Rebbe encouraged is not only to increase in our love, to look at the cause of the exile and to heal it at the root, but also that we study Rambam's laws of the rebuilding of the temple. It's called Hilchas Beis Habachira because it's a positive mitzvah, one of the 613 mitzvahs, to build a temple for Hashem in which offerings, sacrifices can be brought three times a year to which the festival pilgrimages are made three times a year. In the Torah it is written, they shall make for me a sanctuary. And the original sanctuary was also on a journey. It was the Mishkan, which Moshe Rabbeinu made, and it's described in detail in the Torah. But it was a temporary, a temporary house for God. Interestingly, even after the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, that Mishkan continued to journey with them. When they entered the land, for the 14 years of capture or conquer and divide, the Mishkan was in a place called Gilgal. From there it came to a place called Shiloh. They built a temple of stone, but not with a roof. The curtains of the Mishkan were put over it. It had no solid roof, and into it, they put the vessels, the menorah, the holy shulchan, the holy table, the kior, the washing basin, the two altars. All of the things that were used in the service of the temple were kept in Shiloh for 369 years. And eventually, when Eli the high priest passed away, that place in Shiloh was actually destroyed. From there they came to Nov, and they built a Mishkan there, a sanctuary there. And when the prophet Shmuel passed away, this was destroyed, and they came to Givon and built a sanctuary there. From Givon eventually they came to the permanent Beit HaMikdash, and Nov and Givon. The temple was there for 57 years, so all in all, it was 440 years before the permanent temple was built and the Mishkan, the sanctuary, journeyed with them. Everything is a journey. And we've just studied a piece of the laws of the building of the temple, which the Lubavitcher Rebbe encouraged to give us a feeling of what it was about and a feeling of that we yearn to again have what is a mitzvah that cannot be done until the Mashiach comes. So to find out what is it that we're yearning for in terms of the Mashiach. 
Is it just that we don't have difficulty anymore? Is it just that there are no more wars? Is it just that there's no more jealousy, strife, hunger? It's more than that. It's not just a negative. It's about something to anticipate in the future. When we speak about journeying, the Torah tells us, these are the journeys of the children of Israel by which they went forth from the land of Egypt. And then 42 journeys are listed. And of course we know the first journey took them out of Egypt. So why are all 42 journeys ascribed to leaving Egypt? And they left Egypt, it says, and then they came to the good and spacious land. And we've mentioned that Egypt means confinement, restriction. But of course, as soon as they left Egypt, they left their confinement. Why was it only after all 42 journeys that we are told they had reached spaciousness? And the truth is that each one of us is on a journey to reach a spiritual goal. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. As an individual moves toward a spiritual goal, each time we struggle with something, we move from that inner conflict, which is a constricted place, to the relief, to the open place of what we could describe as serenity, the journey we have in life. We're going toward a spiritual goal, connection with Hashem. But there are distractions along the way, secular distractions, material distractions. But we're yearning for connection, for unity with Hashem. Life on a daily basis is a constant journey. And the Torah is telling us that every stage we reach, every time we surmount something, it's spacious in comparison to the level that we have left. Nevertheless, as long as we're alive, the journey continues. And we are restricted compared to the level that we want to reach. We are not just satisfied. And so, personally, we keep on journeying until we reach the final open space, which is the time of Mashiach, when ultimately we cross the Jordan and that marks the division between traveling, journeying, and arriving. This is our life. Every individual has 42 journeys in his life. And each one of them is like leaving Egypt. We keep maturing. We keep growing in every one of our relationships. We cannot say, I brought my wife a flower today. She must be happy for the rest of her life. I gave my child dinner tonight. I never have to give him dinner again. I was aware, and I met my friend for coffee, and we spoke, and she felt better. I am now free of trying. Every night, the sun goes down. Every morning, the sun comes up. And every day, every minute of the day, we are called upon to grow. The journey is not over as long as we are in this world. And each and every journey brings us closer to the promised land. And every time we reach a new point, it makes our previous achievement look like Mitzrayim, confinement. Every stage is a new exodus. 
Yes, the Jews in the Parsha, they'd already left the physical Egypt, but they still had to pass the Egypt of the soul, the restriction that the soul has in this world on a constant basis. And that's why Mushki and I were talking, and she mentioned to me that we say on a daily basis that each day we have to see ourselves as if we have left Egypt. What does that mean? Like today I have left Egypt. What does that mean to you, Mushki? It's a very interesting mixture. Because on the one hand, you just um, spoke about, you touched on before, during the laws of the dwelling place that we should create for God, that the original dwelling place was one that was created in journey. But doesn't it seem to you like journey and dwelling place are two complete opposites? So when you say, what does it mean to be aware as if we're leaving Egypt on a daily basis as we, as we spoke of before, it's not just that. It's all about the goal. It's all about leaving Egypt and then we're there. It's all about once we have the dwelling place, things are final, things are set, things are settled. It's a constant journey. And as the saying goes, life is a journey. Enjoy the experience. If it's all just about the end goal, not only will we never be accomplished, but what's the point of any of it then? And if we look at leaving Egypt on a daily basis, as you touched on, Egypt is a broad term. Each of us has our individual Egypt. We have our collective Egypts. Society has Egypts. But at the same time, in Egypt itself, it's not always completely terrible. We have to continue leaving the space that we are currently in. Because if we don't, our life becomes stagnant. I've always loved the example that life is like the down escalator that the child is running up. So you come into the mall and there's two escalators facing you, the down and the up. And it's always fun. Everyone, I'm sure, has done it. I most definitely did to take a chance and run up the down escalator. And interestingly enough, even when it's on, and as long as you're moving, you will reach the top. But the minute that you stop moving, the escalator pulls you down. And that's your journey. Because life will throw things at you constantly. But as long as you're moving, you will achieve steps in the direction that you need to be going in. But the minute you say, I've reached and I'm there, that escalator just will pull you backwards because the job of a person is to move forward. The name for a, given for a person in Hebrew is a mehalech. What is a mehalech? That one who constantly needs to be on the move. One who isn't on the move just finds themselves back in the Egypt of yesterday and in the Egypt of the day before. Hmm. And when we say every day we need to be coming out of Egypt, 
Egypt isn't one place. Every day our Egypt is new. And, of course, there's the concept that we can't always understand someone until we've been in their own shoes. But we also can't be expected to understand the new Egypts that we face every day instantly. Because it's a new experience to ourselves. And what we are today, we weren't ever before. It's a new step up on the, on the rung, on the escalator. So facing that Egypt, I think, also comes hand in hand with being gentle on oneself and saying, my journey has to be about taking the next step, not about getting what is eventually there. Amazing, hey? In fact, the concept that you're touching on is also interesting. When you think of the escalator, you think a ladder. Right. The question is, you've got a guy on the 13th rung and somebody else only on the third rung. Which one is higher? Which one is? The answer is, depends on the direction in which they're going. Yeah. And very often people get so frustrated by life which is supposed to be a challenge, and God forbid it turns into an Egypt, a confinement. They become stuck. And we have the teaching that God never, ever gives us anything that we cannot overcome. He gives the cure before the sickness. He gives the tools before the challenge. Interestingly enough, I've always thought of, you talk about the rungs on a ladder, And one of the great joys in parenthood is being able to play board games with your children. In our house, it's a very important thing. And it's all about, to in a child's eyes, who's going to win. And as the parent, you need to teach them to enjoy the game and that it's not all about winning because sometimes you'll win, sometimes you won't. A fun game, obviously, is snakes and ladders. And it's been a big teaching experience and a learning experience with our kids that just because you're almost at the end of the game and you've climbed that highest ladder, it doesn't mean you're going to win. Because so often around the corner, there might be a slide, there might be a snake and you can slip back down. As you said, which direction are you going on the ladder in? And... Interestingly, this idea of journeys is something that we face not just in our adult lives, but we face this from the very beginning all the way through. You take a child who enters nursery school. Now they come into nursery school and with wide eyes, they're in the twos. And they see there's the threes and the fours and the fives and the pre-graders and look at those kids on the pre-graders swinging on the monkey bars and look how big they are and they know everything. And with these big eyes, they go through nursery school. Oh, Odia, when I'm going to be in pre-grade, I'm going to be big. I'm going to have, I'm going to get there. And when I'm in pre-grade, it's, that's it. I'm the king of the castle. And what happens when they're in pre-grade? They look and they're, oh, you know, I see the primary school children. When I get to grade one, it's all about that. And the same replays, until grade six, until, and you come into grade seven, and again, you're on the bottom of the rung. Until I'm in matric, or the matrics just look at the university students. If we're only thinking about the next stage we're going to reach, not enjoying that journey we're on, we're not going to be able to conquer Egypts. 
we're not going to be able to fulfill that the specific journey that we need to be on because we're always looking at someone else's plate, how we need to fill ourselves up with something wow. else and how that will be the only thing that fills us up. I love it. In other words, stop looking at someone else. Enjoy the moment, mindfulness, be where you are. And in truth, everything is directed by Hashem. So exactly where you are is not only where you need to be, but where the greatest joy, fulfillment, and, and the, the greatest achievement, not only for yourself, but for the whole world exists. Because in a school, there will be a time when you will be in grade one. Yep. And despite the fact that you feel so small, you need to get everything out of that grade one experience in order to become a grade two. You know, when I look at a set of, remember in the olden days, we had encyclopedia. Yeah. And we also have the idea of various volumes. From book one, you can graduate to book two. In grade one, there are readers. And then you can, when you finish the red series, you go to the yellow series or whatever. It's no good not enjoying the red because somebody else is on the green. Where I am, this is where I'm meant to be from infinite God at this moment. And he has put into my world everything I need to complete not only myself, my family, but all of creation. And it's a, it's a balance act, I feel. Because on the one hand, someone can become very complacent, saying, oh, I have everything I need. I don't need to continue climbing. Or, on the other hand, all they can be doing is looking at the boy or the girl who's already on the red, on the blue or the yellow series, and not doing what they need to, to successfully finish and internalize everything on the level that they're on. Exactly. You know that the... In the, in the desert, when the Jews were journeying, there were two kinds of mistakes that were made then that we continued to make. The one mistake is to believe they had arrived. You remember a few weeks ago in the Parsha, the people didn't want to enter the land of Israel. The wilderness is good. We have daily manna. We have water from a rock. We have the clouds of glory. We are free here to be comfortable and study the Torah. But Hashem said no. In other words, sometimes you think, I've taken things on in my Yiddishkeit, in my Judaism, and it's enough. I can now rest, you know, compared to where I came from. It's quite something how far I've come. And when you say the journeys of the Jews, the journeys in Judaism, in Yiddishkeit, the Jews are and always have been a traveling people. Go back to the very first Jew. Abraham. In the first in the first portion that we are introduced to Abraham, we learn about his journey in discovering God. And as that proceeds, what happens to him? He's sent from the place that he lives. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. And the place that he grew up. And the journeys continued, and he traveled from place to place. 
And we see, even on the hunt for partners in their lives, Isaac, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, it was all about traveling. It was all about going. It was all about growing. And then what happened? They go down to Egypt, the story of Joseph, Yosef, and the Jews leave Egypt and come the many years of traveling. Yeah. And it's almost in our DNA. Huh. And what does that mean? When you're given something, it's not, ugh, this is something that is just so difficult for me. It means that this very thing is the thing that's going to help us grow and reach our potential. Absolutely. Amazing. But there were two things that happened in the desert that got in the way. Two mistakes that the Jewish people made. And it's actually something we need to take to heart. It's a kind of warning to us that we can fall into personally or nationally. And the first mistake, as it were, is to believe that they had arrived. You know, there were people who didn't want to leave the desert. It was good. We've left Egypt, and now we have so much goodness in the desert. We're being taken care of. We were given the Torah. We had revelation at Sinai. We have daily manna. We have Moshe Rabbeinu with us. We have water from a rock, etc. We have arrived. We've been rescued from Egypt. In our personal lives, there are people who, thank God, have moved and grown and Maybe I've reached very far in my Judaism, and I think, it's enough. I can now rest. But the truth is, as you say, a Jew has not been created to stand still. There's always a new journey ahead of us. And I love to repeat, my father used to say, the bear climbed over the mountain, and what do you think he saw? He saw another mountain. So what do you think he did? He climbed the other mountain. What do you think he saw? And so it goes. So sometimes we think we've arrived. But the other mistake is a mistake of despair. You know, in, in the desert as well. We'll never get out of here. Personally, a person can feel, you know, I know so little. Or I'm so capable, incapable. I'm capable of so little. And what difference does the mitzvah that I do actually make? But in truth, every step is a liberation from Egypt. And as you said, it depends on the direction in which you're traveling. That's more important than how far you've come along the way. And of course, in addition to that, we have to look at ourselves as a nation. There can be what we call historical despair. The feeling of, how's the Mashiach going to come if he didn't come to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to Moshe Rabbeinu, to David HaMelech? And even more than how is he going to come, who are we to think that he should now come in our generation? I mean... Looking back at the generations past, the giants of man, the giants in Torah knowledge, the giants in action, who are we to think now's the time he's going to 
Th- this is our time. Yeah. I mean, look at previous generations, the values, the morals, the decency that unfortunately we don't see in today's times very much. The edges have been blurred. The question is, is he really going to come in our generation? But when you say that, it takes us back to the word we've been using all along, Egypt. And although we've had so many different times of exile, the biggest exile referred to is always Egypt. And when the nation was ready to leave Egypt, they were not on a high level. When the nation was taken out of those depths of despair, they were in many ways lower than we are. For sure, because we're told they had sunk to the 49th level level. of, of what we call Tumah, for which there is no explanation. And our rabbis have assured us that with everything that has happened, the journey, personal and national, till this point, that the journey toward the Mashiach, most of it has already been traveled, and that the goal is near. And also an amazing thing the Rebbe points out, that we live, unlike the people in Egypt, after Revelation at Sinai. And so the power of that revelation is constantly with us. And we've had teachers, spiritual leaders, who have connected us with Hashem, who have given us the most inner secrets of Torah to help us, to push us up in our climb. And I think when we say us, we need to remember that as much as one is on an individual journey, the journey that we're on is a journey of the collective nation. And we are just further along the line of all these giants. But when it comes to us, not only are we standing on their shoulders so we can see much further than they could have seen, but more than that, we're together with them. There's the famous poem of Footprints in the Sand. Man talks to God looking back on his life and says, God, how come all along there were two sets of footprints and during the difficult times I only see one set of footprints in the sand? You left me. And God says, no, my son. In the times of difficulty, I was carrying you on my shoulders. It almost seems to us that how can we get through this alone? But we are not. First of all, we known as the people of God, are always together. Hashem has us. When the Jews were at that 49th level of despair in Egypt, not just did Hashem say, okay, this, 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 and this is what you need to do to leave Egypt. Hashem came in and he took them out with his hands. He said, it doesn't matter what level you're at. I will always be your father. I will never forsake you. So, Never mind what level one may reach, we are never too low for Hashem to carry us. And at the same time, we are running in the same footsteps of these giants, and they're pushing us along. And it's this journey that is much bigger than ourselves, and this journey that has a lot more power than just we could give ourselves. I love what you're saying. Absolutely. We cannot feel alone. Not only 
that Hashem is with us and that He has given us great leaders, etc. And we have so much information. But any time we do anything positive, what King David says in Tehillim, Min HaMeitzar Korosi Ko. From narrow straits I call out to Hashem. Hashem answers me with great expanse. Sometimes we don't see it, but we know that it's always there. And not only are we on our own journey, but our collective journeys are intertwined. So the story we were talking about before, an amazing story that came to light, but listen to the details. And... We need to be able to read between the lines, as it were, and interpret it for our own lives. So the story apparently started about 10 years ago. And the man who's telling the story, let's call him Sam. Sam says it was in around Rosh Hashanah about 10 years ago. And this man was reached out to by a member of the Chabad community. And he says, he offered to help me do a mitzvah. And Sam says, I was so touched by the way he spoke to me, by his concern for another Jew. And we chatted, his warmth, his understanding. And it drew me close. And I began to attend that Chabad shul. And I came on a regular basis. He says, every time I did a mitzvah, I felt wonderful. But I cannot say, he says, that it was easy He says, you know, I was already married. I had some children. My wife and my children didn't feel the way I felt. And they didn't become part of this. Nevertheless, he said, you know, my wife respected my wishes that I don't take her anymore to go shopping on Saturday. And she didn't keep Shabbat, but I was trying to keep it. In fact, he said, my wife knew I wanted a special meal and she would prepare it for me. But she couldn't understand why I wouldn't eat the freshly cooked food she made for me on Shabbos and I would only eat the leftovers, the cold things from the day before. She really didn't understand what I was tasting, the sweetness of the mitzvah. He said the children carried on the way they carried on. And he says, you know what? They still respected me. I brought in a good living. And, uh, you know, they, they respected me. They asked my opinion in certain things, but they thought I'd lost it. My friends also thought I'd lost it. He says, for about seven years, I became stronger and stronger in my Yiddishkeit. I was putting on tefillin every day, studying a bit of Torah almost every day. He says, but my family, my friends really thought that I had lost it. And then he says, about three years ago, I went through a really hard time. And during that time, I would silently pray to Hashem. He says, you know what I'm going through. But you know, I've continued to keep your mitzvahs. And he asked for a sign. He said, please show me a sign that you appreciate my sacrifices. Show me that you understand that it's so hard to do something like this on one's own without the support of one's loved ones. Give me a sign that you're with me. He said, but no sign came. And then I began to doubt. Maybe my family, my friends are right. Maybe I'm just taking this Yiddishkeit thing too far. Maybe 
it's enough to just have morals and values and be kind, be respectful, be a decent person. I began to ask myself, why do you have to be different? What they were asking me, I began to ask myself. And eventually I came to a point where I said to myself, they are correct. I decided I'm going to stop this. I didn't mention it to anyone, not even to my wife. I made a decision. I got into my car and I began to drive toward that great steakhouse that I hadn't been to in the last seven years. As I'm about to pull out, I got a phone call. The Chabad emissary, the Chabad rabbi called me. He says, you know, you have to realize it's the first time he called me in all those seven years. Not that he wasn't nice to me. He was warm. He was understanding. When I came to show, he would speak to me. Or when he met me at a party, he would speak to me. But maybe he never phoned me because he didn't want to stress out my family. And my first thought was, is this a sign from above? The sign I should be looking for that I should continue my Yiddishkeit? When the conversation ended and the rabbi hung up, I said, no, no. It just happened he called me. Um, he was asking me something about someone. So I pulled out and I started to drive. I'm on my way. Ten minutes later, one of the men who were chill with me called. Again, I said, is this a sign from the one above that I prayed for? And we chatted, but at the end I thought, no, no. I dismissed it. Then I'm pulling into the parking lot of the restaurant. I get another call. And this is actually from the person who originally inspired me to come closer to the ways of Torah and mitzvahs. He was the one that created the connection that I have with Judaism. But when the conversation ended, I still got out of my car and I still went into the restaurant and I ordered a delicious steak. Now, of course, everybody knows it takes time to cook a steak. So I ordered a salad, which would only take a few minutes, and I began to zip a glass of water. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. Specials this week at Pick and Pay Hyper in Norwood from the 12th to the 15th of July. In the kosher butchery, lean mints, only $89.99 per kilo. The babkas at 400 grams, only $14.99 each. Tender chick whole birds, only $49.99 per kilo. Salad farm hummus, only $29.99 each. Sea harvest hake medallions, 450 grams at $42.99 each. Kosher Deli Barbecue Chicken, only $92.99 rand per kilo. That's Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood. So the story continues. He's had three phone calls, but he's in the restaurant, ordered a steak, then ordered a salad because it takes time for the steak, and he's dripping water. He's zipping water. We'll see. He's ordered a salad and he's sipping a glass of water. And suddenly, a minute later, a young man runs into the restaurant, 
sees me and says, are you Jewish? I wasn't wearing my kippah. I don't know why of all the people sitting there, he asked me, but I heard he sounded frantic. So I said, yes. He then said that an elderly man had fallen on the sidewalk and he was speaking gibberish. And the guy said, I believe he's Jewish and he's saying something in the language of the Jews. Please, can you help the man? So, of course, I immediately got up. My steak wouldn't be ready for 20 more minutes anyhow. And I followed him and we ran out to this elderly man. And the other man was right. He was speaking Hebrew. And he was saying that his foot was sore. I asked if he could help. I asked if I could help him if he lives nearby And he said, I tripped. I just need help to walk to my car, which isn't far from here. I helped him up. We saw that the leg wasn't broken. And I I took him to the car. He gets into the car and he turns to me and he says, are you a Lubavitcher? (laughs) Are you from Chabad? So what am I supposed to say? My mind was in confusion. I'm about to eat a non-kosher steak. But I said, yes. And then the man said, I can't tell you how thankful I am for what you did for me now. He says, I want to show you my appreciation. He says, but I'm such a simple man. I I want to give you, a Lubavitcher, something meaningful. And out of his wallet, he took a special dollar. He says, many years ago, I took a trip to New York, and my friends convinced me to go to the Grand Rabbi on a Sunday and get his blessing. The Rebbe blessed me and gave me this dollar. I've carried it in my wallet all these years. And he says, I know that you, a follower of the Rebbe, would appreciate this, so please accept it as a thank you for what you've done for me today. And Sam concluded, you can see that at that point, I was in total, total amazement. I went to my own car and sat there for a long time, overcome with emotion. I realized Hashem had sent me three messages, but I ignored them. So Hashem sent me a direct message that I could not ignore. There was no mistake. My sacrifices are appreciated. My observance is valued. And as you can figure out for yourselves, since then, my observance is much stronger. Every mitzvah along the way is not only valued, but creates a light, creates strength, creates protection. All the mitzvahs he had done protected him on that day, despite the slide, as it were, Mushki. Was was he playing snakes and ladders? It may have been a bit of a game of snakes and ladders, but we can't get despondent from the slide backwards because sometimes that slide backwards is what propels us to where we need to go. And at the same time, something so interesting that I took from that story is how he said he ignored some of the signs that he had received. Because so often we only want to accept 
something, whether it might be from someone in our lives or from Hashem himself in the exact way which we want it. And if it's not packaged like this and like that, it's not what I'm looking for. But we do have to realize that those around us show their love, show their appreciation, show their understanding and their care, sometimes in a different way than we're used to or than we would. And that's part of the journey. Exactly. That stretches us. And Hashem's reaching out His hand to us is sometimes done in a way that we're not expecting. I think it's always done in a way. Very true. Because even His intervention is clothed in a challenge. And if we're only going to pick up on it when it looks exactly how we want it to look, it's almost like a child with an underdeveloped palate that never wants to taste anything new and can never experience the great joys that life has to offer, that a delicious food might bring them if they were never to taste it because, no, 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 I would never like something like that. But we need to know that once again Hashem is our kind and loving Father and however it's packaged, he means for it to be done in the most loving, caring, and kind way because he only wants good for us. It's an amazing concept because we are in the nine days. We are in the saddest time of the year. It's the time of, of very, very great restriction, a bitter time. It's when you say the saddest time of the year... It's an extreme of sorts. And what do we know about when a person is at one extreme? How do we come to a healthy, happy medium? Often from one extreme, we need to bounce completely to the other extreme in order to reach that healthy place, in order to reach that good place. Showing us that now at the saddest time, we've hit rock bottom. There's nowhere lower to fall and we can only bounce straight back up in order to find that healthy, happy medium. Amazing. The thing is that the timing of reading this Parsha, it's always read during the saddest time of the year. It's a time when we need to be reminded that Hashem never just sends us difficulty, but it's always a concept of Yerida Tzarechaliyah, or destroying in order to rebuild. You know, nothing in life is ever just a punishment, God forbid. Destruction may be for the sake of replacing a building with a better one, a stronger one. There's the story of Rabbi Akiva walking along the Temple Mount with other great rabbis, his colleagues, and they were crying, look at the destruction of the Temple. And as they watched, a fox ran across the ruins And Rabbi Akiva began to smile and laugh. And his colleagues looked at him. Are you crazy? What what do you mean that you're laughing at this terrible sadness? And Rabbi Akiva said, the fact that we've reached this part of the prophecy, that there will be destruction to the point that animals will roam among the ruins of what was once great, means that it can only be time for us to go upward, onward, and into the 
true revelation of goodness. The truth is that he said, why are you crying? And they said, because the terrible prophecies have come to pass. He said, you know, when that prophecy was given, people didn't believe it. And the other prophecies about the greatness in the future were more easily understood. So if this one came to pass, that one for sure will come to pass. We need to understand that destroying and rebuilding are connected. Difficulty and salvation are connected. And we have to journey. We have to journey. Let's not worry about being stuck in our own human cheshben, our own human confines, that it's just not something that's going to happen. Salvation always follows difficulty. Hashem's going to save us. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov taught that when there's a time of difficulty, from that difficulty, we will actually have a great salvation. He says it's not just after the difficulty, but that inside the difficulty, there is incredible, incredible salvation or higher heights to be reached. And please, God, as you said, we'll be able to see history through the eyes of Hashem. You know, the child sees the punishment as something bad, but in the eyes of the father, it's for the child's own good. And ultimately, our journey is to be able to see Hashem's goodness everywhere, even in the difficulty. And when we're able to do that, we're actually able to turn God's hidden mercy into open mercy. And it's up to us to do our part, because then we will change the darkness of exile into the true light, which will last forever. Amen. And wishing you and your listeners a good Shabbos. And we should really be taken from this very moment into the light of Shabbos and into the light of true redemption. Amen. A good Shabbos.